Hello again and welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. As always, I'm your host, Roman Tegal, and I hope you are doing very well. So, who do we have on the show today? Well, today I welcome the wonderful Elizabeth Stamper, who is President of Medicines for Europe and also the Board Chair at Medichem. A really, really smart, smart lady with in- incredible experience. And uh, Elizabeth almost, uh, you know, comes into the interview with two different parts of her persona, which she she kind of takes us through. And for background, she has more than twenty years of experience in the industry as an experienced business leader with a track record in growing and transforming businesses. As Elizabeth serves uh, currently as the board chair of Medicum SA and she has been the former CEO there and transforming a pure API company into a competitive vertical integrated player. A pharmacy graduate by trade, she um, serves on the board of trustees at the IQS in Barcelona and as I mentioned she's also president for Medicines for Europe which we also get into today. She's been an active member of international associations throughout her professional career and advocates for legislative changes that improve patient accessibility and strengthen the European industry outlook. So a really, really terrific guest for you to enjoy uh, today. If you like today's show, then please uh, share it with a colleague or a friend and don't forget to, to subscribe. Enjoy. Hey, Elizabeth, welcome to Molecule to Market. Hi, Raman. Very nice to be here. Yeah, great to to have you on the show. We met a few months ago and it's taken a bit of time to to schedule it because you are a very, very busy lady. So let's let's give our listener a bit of your backstory. In the introduction, I've already kind of given our listener a feel for the fact that you almost wear two different hats. But before we get into those two hats that you wear. Talk to us about your background and your story into the sector. And, and if you can in, intertwine, I suppose, the, the backstory of Medicare, that would be fantastic as well. Sure. I'm I'm a pharmacist by education. I then took an MBA and uh, joined very briefly the family-owned company, um, doing some research about the molecules which were produced by Medicam but then moved to, to a Spanish company called Laboratorios Esteve. And I worked there for three years in, in marketing for retail pediatric products, actually. And then uh, my father asked me if I wanted to join the company because he was, besides the API company, he was starting and finished all such form company based uh, initially on one single product which was uh, Zidovudin, which was AZT for AIDS patients. And at that moment in time, Spain was one of the big countries where we had more AIDS patients because it's, um, uh, it, it gets through the use of, of um, syringes of the use of, because of the use of drugs. So the prevalence was extremely high in, in Spain. And Medicam or Combino Farm in this case launched the first generic product ever in Spain for AZT. 
AZT was uh, obviously the innovator did not like um, computer farm getting into the market with a discounted price. The AZT was a product which was on top of the expenditure of all Spanish hospitals because it was distributed by hospitals. So when a completely unknown company no knocked on their door saying, listen, I have the generic version of the product you are spending most, they at least they listen to us. So that was uh, incredible for the company because it went from zero to, to, the, to the moon in, in six months. Um, and it was really the, the first generic ever done in or marketed in Spain with the corresponding bioequivalence studies with everything. Uh, there was also a big, uh, it was big on the press because the innovator was uh, trying to, to, to get the generic version out of the market. So that was very good publicity for uh, advertising for, 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 for the company. And it was, uh, the, the reaction from the hospitals was amazing because they kept calling the lab saying, listen, if we're going to stop producing this product, send me whatever you have because I want to keep stock. So that was the beginning of, of, um, of, of, of my tenure, uh, actually in, in the genetics market, basically. And then uh, we started looking into which other products could uh, be turned into a generic version in the Spanish hospital market. So that was the beginning of of, of Combinofarm, which was doing finished dosage forms. And based on that, uh, full hospital range was created over the years with a dedicated sales uh, net and uh, expanded eventually into, into Portugal. And Medicam continued to do single uh, APIs for, for basically for US customers. Can I just check my understanding? So, was so Combino Pharma was effectively the 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 generics company that was bringing drugs to market, whereas the yes. Medicam was the API yes. business. In fact, okay. And were they both part of your family business? With these almost two separate arms? Yes. Of the okay, that's good to know. Thank you. So the business grew. Medicam continued to grow, but um, a while ago, that means like eight years ago. The, the company on the retail market, on the, on the hospital market, uh, Combino was really struggling to, to be um, flexible enough and, and, and agile enough in, in a tender-based business because eventually more companies discovered the same potential market and it, it became extremely tenderized. So this part of the business was divested to, to another company and what was left, which was basically development of, of finished dosage forms and the BD team that was integrated within Medicam in order to transform an, a pure API player into a vertically integrated uh, company, which is what the company is now. So Medicam produces, so Combino disappeared of, uh, from the market, basically, and Medicam does APIs independently, where there is no development of the finished dosage forms. There are some finished dosage forms where the API comes from a third party. And the, the big bucket is the vertically integrated dossiers because the company is a B2B company, so it's always a third party who does either the full development or the licensing in and the marketing of the finished product. And 
Talk to us about then the, obviously you joined the business originally when your father had asked you to come and help out. Talk us through the, I suppose, the journey, uh, particularly, I suppose, with within Medichem as that business developed over the years. So, uh, you know, the Combino Pharma one was um, was divested, I think it was over 20 years ago from, from my understanding. And then uh, how was the journey then from that point? And, uh, you know, and what, what was the... What was the point in the journey that you took over the reins from from your dad? Or <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I actually took no, no. I I, I took from a from a from a third party. Ah, sorry. Uh, at, okay. the, at, at the no, at the moment of of integrating with what was left from Combino Farm, the company was also struggling. So what basically I I did was to rationalized so we had development centers in china for example this disappeared we had different development centers also scattered over over uh, spain we centralized everything into one uh and we tried to to bring common sense and, and a bit reduce not the size of the company but the size of the, the number of setups interesting so that uh we centralized the r d uh and and the the BD efforts, and basically put a bit of of more common sense, if you wish, and and try to really understand what was our, our customers needed. We, we took a lot of things for for granted, and what I try to do is go and ask the customer what what do they want, what do they need from us? Do they, do they need the API? Do they need the finished dosage form? Do they need a mixed formula whereby I don't know for the launch they acquire the the undistributed, they finish those such forms, but then they want to switch into their own plans. You know, try, let's try to be flexible because each company is different and some of them want to fill their plans. Some others are completely overrun and, and need, need want to use the products for them. So let's be flexible and adapt to each individual company or customer and see what they need. And I think that's a bit the success of Medicum. Try to be flexible and and serve the customer in the best possible way and from that initial i mean i'm guessing that was a, a difficult process to have to do the hard <laughs> the hard work in terms of divesting one business and rationalizing and i suppose just centralizing quite a lot of the existing business activities and was there a was was there almost a turning point in many chems fortunes and in, in terms of the next few years was there a point in that journey where it really started to get traction because obviously it's become a, a really sizable business uh, today um, or, or, or has it just been a kind of a steady growth like suppose sustainable growth over the last kind of 15 20 years I, I mean it, there was a there was a turning point because the company was in a in a let's say in a tight uh, economic position and it took a couple of years I was I was uh, naive enough to think I could manage and reverse everything in 12 months which in a in in, a, in in our sector is extremely difficult because as you know you start development today and the product maybe doesn't get commercial until 10 years from now so it took a couple of years to really uh, get to break even and that that was a turning point because at that moment really the the team started believing uh, we could do it uh, started to look into the future because until then it was a bit uh, economy war, uh, and, and and people were more worried about really reaching reaching 
positive numbers than really thinking about the future and or all the all the options and all the possibilities we could we could develop in the future. The turning point really allowed to become much more creative to think about different options uh, and, and and play play a bit with the future, decide uh, on strategies which up to that point had been extremely difficult. If you reflect back, uh, Elizabeth, on that time, and you know, I suppose the reason I'm asking this question is because a lot of companies in this sector have had a difficult year. You know, 2023 was a tough year for the market in certain segments of the outsourcing space. As you reflect on that time where you almost uh, had to turn the business around, what were what were some of the key lessons that you learned during that time? That you know, if you know, during difficult times that you were kind of you call on today that these are kind of fundamental lessons that you learned back then i think uh to have the best people uh working with you in the company because at the end of the day um it's it's the people who manage to do everything so having a great team enables you to and being able to share your vision with them enables you to to to, to get to that point and 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 guide during the process and when there are um, kickbacks you say no 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 come on I mean this we were still we are still there uh, there's another option let's try another customer let's see if we manage to finish this development so I think the, the most relevant thing here is is, is, is the people and he having a, a clear strategy of what what you want to achieve could not could not agree more so so give us before we kind of move on to your uh, role within medicines for Europe Give our listener a bit of a, a feel for the kind of scale of Medicam today. Uh, is it all, I believe it's kind of all based on in, in Spain, but obviously you've got a global business there, but size, scale, capabilities, that would be that would be great just to give our listener just some insight onto the business. Sure. Uh, Medicam's uh, turnover is 140 million euros. Uh, there is a team of 450 people and the company has four manufacturing sites. Two of them are for API. One is based in Spain, one is based in Malta. Uh, both of them uh, approved by, by FDA and by the main health authorities worldwide. And then there is a, in Malta a manufacturing site for solid orals where you can do tablets, uh, pellets and, and capsules, which is also approved by FDA. And the fourth company is, or uh, the fourth site is, um, is a small site acquired a year ago, which will be for injectables, but is, which is currently under construction. Uh, the company was in a distressed situation, so we acquired thinking we could use some of the equipment. Unfortunately, that was not possible. And giving the Annex 1, uh, which, which is now, uh, in, in, in Europe, we decided to, to go for a complete new site. So we are keeping the shell and building a new uh, injectable plant in that, in that shell. And that's in the northern part of Spain. So there are two, plant, two, two sites in Spain two si- and two sites in, in Malta. So I think you might be the first guest we've ever had on who has a site in Malta, which is not. Uh, <laughs> and uh, my, uh, my eldest son... For some bizarre reason, well, not bizarre reason, because you know it's a beautiful place, but I asked him recently, where's the one place in the world? Bearing uh, in mind, we just visited Japan. Where's the one place in the world you want to visit? And he said, Malta. So, <laughs> so what, what, I suppose, 
and for British listeners, you'll probably appreciate that Malta has a reputation, particularly in the UK, as where you know one of those destinations where all the British people go to go to a holiday. Yes, exactly. So, what's the what's the infrastructure and talent and structure like in there? Because it's not the obvious place. No, it's not the obvious place. The thing is, um, Malta is a patent friendly environment because. Uh, many companies did not patent their products in Malta. So for, for uh, many products we produce, or medical producers, it's possible to, to manufacture them you know, at commercial scale in Malta with respecting all intellectual property rights from, from any part, while this could not be done in Spain. Wow, okay. And these opportunities, I mean, it's not only Medicam there, there are other... Rele very relevant generic players there because the Maltese government decided to diversify their their its economy uh, I don't know at the beginning of of of, of, uh, of the of the year to, uh, 2000 and they they try to attract investment of what is called clean industry so pharma is still a clean industry and 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 they really got that that uh, that attraction. There is now like between twelve and uh, ten and fifteen different pharma companies based in in Malta. It belongs now to the to the European Union, which allows a free flow of people and and of goods. And it's a uh, it's an interesting place because it's in the middle of the Mediterranean. It has been an Arabic nation. It has been. It has. It belonged to the British. Um, the Spanish also were there. So, it's a very, very interesting mixture of, of cultures, and it's uh, that you, you can find uh, extremely reliable and knowledgeable people. They have their own university. There are lots of Maltese people who come to 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 Europe or to the UK for their education and then then are happy to, to to go back so it's very interesting and and very good environment yeah good life's a good good place to live i suspect <laughs> well yeah the, the, nice, the, nice. The, the, the climate is nice yes <laughs> you're gonna be getting loads of job applications for your sites in Mars. <laughs> and i suppose one final question before we we move on to medicines for europe um, the business is still family owned and family run effectively. I know you're you you are now the kind of chair of the board, um, but the business still has that kind of family feel running through it. I I assume. Yes, yes, it still has. Amazing. It still, it, it, it still has because I think without becoming soft, uh, we we still take care of, of the people because uh, that is at the end uh, what we consider the, the most important of asset we have. Which is which is great. So uh, it's it's actually pretty rare these days I interview uh, someone with a you know to leading a business in our space that is still independently owned. So it's uh, I suppose kudos to you and the team and uh, for remaining kind of independent and actually retaining that family feel because it's it's easier said than done especially when you're scaling to the size multiple sites and geographies that you guys have had so congratulations on that and um i suppose just switching gears and you know with the kind of the thread of malta and europe let's talk about your other role which is a really interesting one as well 
uh, where you're the, the president of, of Medicines for Europe. So talk to us about what the organization is and actually just how you ended up becoming president because it's a really interesting role and I imagine it brings <laughs> lots of different kinds of pressures and, and exposure as well. Yes, so Medicines for Europe is the trade association representing the generic, uh, the biosimilars and the value-added medicines in in Brussels, basically to the European authorities. Uh, the, the association is um, almost 30 years old, so it has been there for, for a while. However, it gained a lot of... Um, traction and and became very well known because during the pandemic unfortunately uh, it most of the products used in 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 the emergency rooms and uh, the patients were generic products and the company uh, the, the association was pushing extremely hard together with FPA to keep the roads open allow the free movement of at least of, of medicines and active ingredients so that the pharmaceutical companies could continue producing the medicines for COVID, but also for any other treatment were, uh, in Europe. So that was really the uh, a turning point for the association. The association is, is, is based in, in Brussels. There are 26 national associations um, uh, who are members besides a little bit over 30 independent companies besides being member of the national association now have their own voice uh, within 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 medicines for europe and uh, basically it's trying to promote the use of generics and, and biosimilars and make sure the patients in europe have uh, access to affordable medicines and then can that can be um, the, the more um, or the older stuff like like generics or the more the newer biosimilars which are currently on the market. And as for value-added medicines, those have those are unfortunately not yet recognized in Europe like they are in the U.S. But that's one of the things the association is trying to to promote because there is a lot of very interesting repurposing of drugs, uh, like giving a, a second life with the new indications or new dosage forms, what in the US is, is known as a 55B2. And, and there is a regulatory pathway established in Europe. There's still no regulatory pathway. And the, the drugs are not reimbursed at, at national level. So this is one of the, of the advocacy points of also of the association. You're listening to Molecule to Market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. How do you navigate, and I suppose for our North American listeners or, you know, anyone, particularly anyone in the US, you know, Europe is obviously <laughs> made up of lots of different countries. Yes. And each of them has their own unique healthcare system and there isn't a one-size-fits-all for everything. So... I suppose, how do you navigate that piece within all of this? Because you know, certainly I I think we all probably advocate for the affordability piece and access to medicines for, for patients, but I'm, I'm guessing it's very tricky to manage across or to, to advocate and lobby across so many different countries. 
Yeah, it's 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 tricky. One of the pillars of the associations are definitely the national associations because they are the, the link between what happens at, at country level and what happens in Europe. Uh, to make it more difficult, also the, the 27 countries have um, their own national systems. Most of the countries have a sort of social security or NHS or some institution which covers broadly for 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 the health or takes care of of the health and uh, the drugs administered or prescribed to the to the patients uh in in many cases there is a co-payment and in some others there is not uh, it's tenderized it this also varies uh, country by country there are some countries where only the hospital segment is tenderized in like for example Spain or France in Germany, for example, what is tenderized is, is the retail market. So it really goes country by country. And the association works in a way where there is a permanent staff uh, who does a fantastic job, who advocates with the European institutions. And then uh, there is a, a board. But basically, it's the national associations who try to, to, to move that dialogue in between what is said in, in Brussels and what uh, the, the individual countries do. And if, if I may introduce an example here, one of the big topics in Europe in 2022 with the start of, of the war in Ukraine was the increase of the energy costs. And that led to extreme inflation, which also happened in, in, in the US. So the response of the different countries uh, has been very, very com com completely different. In some countries, the some review of generic pricing has been introduced and some other they, they keep bringing the prices down continuing with with uh, tendering systems which only pay a price so how the individual countries react to to things like that are also still completely very very go from, from black to, to to white and 360 degrees so each country has Different problems, but they are all suffering from increasing healthcare costs because the, the innovative uh, products are, are more expensive, but also because there is an aging population which where life expectancy is is, is increasing in, in, in most of the European countries. <laughs> especially in Europe. <laughs> yes, yeah, especially in Europe. So, and, and someone has to take care, and that's the national healthcare system. You can call it... Uh, how you want, but but at the end of the day, it's a national system taking care of, of that elderly population and providing the the drugs and, and the treatments. And usually, it's not one single treatment; they are polymedicated. Well, one of the things I was keen on understanding, I suppose, if you if you look at generics and biosimilars, these are often products that end up getting, um, you know, the the I suppose the the supply chain or the the manufacturing raw ingredients at some point in their journey might move to, to lower cost economies in Asia. I suppose from your vantage point within the medicines for Europe, are you seeing, have you seen any trend in the last few years to like kind of onshoring and localization of supply chains as a consequence of what happened in the pandemic or, you know, from what you see, is there still a, a high reliance on these kind of Asian markets, particularly, particularly China and, and India? Yes, there's still a high reliance, um, extremely high. 
because it goes from filters for producing injectables to the building blocks of the active pharmaceutical ingredients. So it touches basically everything. However, um, there is now this uh, uh, understanding that this reliance exists that for many products there is no longer the API and in, in some cases also the finished dosage form is no longer produced in Europe. So if it's produced in a country where the borders are closed or there is a, the, the ports are closed, this can, can be a, a, huge, a huge problem. So at least there is the understanding. What, what we are still missing is some ways of reverting this somehow or some measures to, to counterbalance this. It's true that the individual companies are starting to reshore the products uh, as much as possible because it's impossible to think that Europe, I think also the US, could be 100% autonomous. That, that would be a bit... Um, unrealistic, yeah. Probably, yeah, unrealistic and, and probably not efficient at all. But uh, the, the individual, at least at company levels, the companies are starting to, to look for producers in Europe, for the intermediate, for some of the products. So there is a, there's a trend of, of getting back to Europe. However, the, the, there are two problems. One is the price, the market is willing to pay, and this is the, the public market or the, the public um, health system. And then the other problem is in, in Europe, the the big push of um, environmental rules rules completely out to produce certain intermediates for example for active ingredients you can only find them in, in India or China I mean it, it would not be possible to produce those products some products in Europe just for environmental reasons wow and one thing I suppose if I reflect on your your career success, in, I suppose the, the, the two areas of your success that we've discussed today is, um, I suppose, traditionally API businesses in particular, you know, have a very industrial feel and and they are often very male-dominated businesses and dominated environments. And likewise, you find yourself in a, a very high-profile senior role in, in, a, in a, obviously an association across Europe again as a as a female leader in that role. What what have been your I suppose observations I suppose as you as your career has developed in the last kind of fifteen twenty years and you've become I suppose better known as a female leader and talk to us about some of the challenges and I suppose ways you've navigated that because I imagine that's been a you, I imagine you've lived in a male dominated world for the majority of your of your career. Um, yes. However, it has to, there are two sides of the coin, like always. Sometimes it's um, more difficult to, to, to be credible because maybe you don't get the same attention. On the other hand, if you are the only woman or the only female in the room, you get some attention. So <laughs> I think you have to play your cards in the best possible way to, to navigate. And at the end of the day, I think it's trying to serve the, the industry, trying to serve the customers and... Uh, being professional and usually customers appreciate the company being professional. They don't like, they don't look if you're a, um, a man or a woman. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, I think what you said there is that kind of 
fundamental piece around being being professional, serving customers, serving your people. I think if you don't, irrespective of male or female, if you're good at what you do, then people see through. They don't see it, and so I, I, I absolutely couldn't couldn't agree uh, anymore. So, um, in the last five minutes, I just wanted to get your view on, I suppose, the trends and where we're going. uh, I suppose in in the future, if you. Yeah, we're, we're recording this at the start of 2024, as I, as I mentioned earlier, 23, from all accounts, has been a, a challenging year for lots of areas of, of the outsourcing space, for, for, you know, for various reasons, right? Um, what What's your views on the market in the next couple of years? If you want to talk to us about, I suppose, Medicam and how you guys are positioned to potentially take advantage of, of what you're seeing in the market as well. As Medicam, um, I believe the advantage is that the company has, has a right size to be continue to be extremely flexible and serve the customers in what the big players cannot do because you can fill those spaces. And that, that uh, I think, is, is the, the idea. In, the, in terms of, of the healthcare uh, future, as I mentioned, the, there is an aging population and a more and more educated population who wants to get access to, to the best potential treatment. So the, the patients and uh, the, the, that pharma companies in, in, in direct relation with the patients in, in with, with um, access to, to the retail market, they, they notice that uh, much more than, than what we do. But the patient is more and more educated and they want to get the right treatment. So there's also a, a, a pressure from the patient to, and they are, they are pushing for the rights to get a, a, a good treatment. In some cases, it will need to be an innovative medicine. In some other, they, probably they can be treated with a generic or a, or a biosimilar in, in many cases. Chronic conditions, uh, generic probably is the, is, the, is the best option. But the company, uh, the the market will continue to grow. This will continue to grow because there is an aging population. There are more and more um, countries also becoming more regulated and raising the, the standards of what is needed to produce medicines and what is required. So I think the com- the market will continue to to grow. Uh, hopefully, uh, and evolve in a way where the value of, of generic medicines and biosimilars is recognized and uh, fairly compensated, not only not only based strictly on on price and looking at at, at the cent. Even if the public health authorities struggle in in distributing their their funds, obviously. Um, and uh, I, I truly hope that at least in Europe, um, the European authorities recognize the, the industry which already exists in Europe and, and try to incentivize that industry to become greener on one hand, because that's a big topic on which, which I think we all have to, to lean in, uh, but also to, to become more digitalized and to remain competitive at, at global level because the competitors at the end of the day are the Eastern countries, India, China, and, and the US. So I hope the European authorities uh, take some measures. I'm, I, I'm, I'm always 
feeling sad, at least in Spain, when, when, when I hear, no, we're going to ask whatever the chips company to come and, and have whatever, set up a site in, in our manufacturing site in Spain and create employment, blah, blah. And I always think, well, the industry which already exists, whether in Spain or in Europe, you should try to protect and, and try and help that, that industry to, to thrive and to, to flourish and to further develop so that at the end of the day, Europe remains being a competitive um, pharma industry. No, I agree. And that's uh, some fantastic insights there. And Elizabeth, before you go, I had one final question, which I should have asked earlier. It, it's something that I'm interested to know what you have learned about being the leader of medicines for Europe, you know, the, the head of, a, I suppose, a pan-European trade association. Lesson that you've learned or insight that you've gained, which is that you would not have gained from running a business. I suppose in my mind, it's a, it's different to running a business and it's probably a different level of stakeholder management and profile. So I'm just curious to know if there's anything in particular that you've learned doing that role versus what you'd historically been doing. Uh, well, I definitely learned what uh, what lobbying looks, lo- lobbying looks like <laughs> because I'd never done that. And... Uh, because at the end of the day, uh, if, if I try to, I, I always try to, to imagine how I would be if I was a customer or what, the person sitting at the, at the other end of the table. Yeah? So if I was a European commissioner and I had to listen to, I don't know, 10 different uh, advocating groups a day, each of them asking for something, you know, from, from, from the farmers to the chip industry to the, to the automotive industry, um, energy, you name it, and each of them asking for having different requests for their industry. So I think what I've learned is to to try to try to 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 get the attention by by supporting it with evidence and and uh, being down to being down to earth. I think the fact that um, I've been running a, a smaller company compared to, to, to big multinationals is that when you go to, to the European Commission uh, and tell them, listen, uh, a while ago when, when we were struggling, uh, we had to let people go and you let people go because the numbers don't, don't match. So we're demanding higher prices, not just out of fun. Because otherwise the companies are not sustainable, and and those are European com- companies. So, so if you if you come with the evidences, they they, they listen to you, and uh, this has been a, a great learning. It has been extremely extremely interesting as a as a as a personal experience. I've I've got to to know many people I would have never met definitely, and then I have this fantastic interaction with the with the heads of of the top companies in Europe uh, in the generics and uh, biosimilar seg- segment. And uh, I learned from them a lot too. Great advice. Uh, great way to finish today's interview. Elizabeth, what an absolute pleasure having you on on the podcast. Congratulations on the, I suppose, the entrepreneurial success that you've had from taking your family business and, and continuing to grow it into uh, the, the, a really impressive business that it is today. And also, um, we certainly applaud your advocacy work at Medicines for Europe and everything that you you stand for. I'm sure every everyone that's listening to today's podcast will uh, you know will certainly connect and follow and, and and 
just hopefully share some of the great things that you're doing there. So thanks for being a guest. Thank you very much. And there you have it. That was the wonderful Elizabeth Stamper, who is president of Four Medicines for Europe and the board chair at Medichem. Uh, what a terrific guest and I uh, love the authenticity of uh, Elizabeth's story. Uh, particularly liked her early story and how she took over the kind of reins of her family business and you know from her father. And it sounds like it wasn't all all straightforward. She was, um, I think it was really useful for her to share the kind of story of what challenges it was, uh, the challenges the business had uh, in 20 years ago or so. And she played a significant role in turning the business around and you know, through rationalization and divestment and you know some of the lessons learned during that time, which I suspect will be really useful for many of you at the minute if you're going through a difficult period due to the market. Um, it's great to hear how she rebuilt uh, the business into a multinational business, which obviously you know has API and FDF capabilities and seems to have kind of that family feel and flexibility to its core. And it was, uh, I think it's the first guest that we've had on who has a facility or two in Malta of all places in the world. So good to hear how that came about and what that uh, offers as well. And uh, I suppose towards the back end of the podcast, you know, I was focusing on her role uh, you know, as medicines for at uh, medicines for Europe, and she talked about the the change that had uh, included and the kind of things she had to get used to. Uh, but also, I thought it was useful to get some kind of insight onto the impact of the aging population. And although we were talking about Europe, obviously that very much goes for most places in the world now, and what knock on effect that has, and you know, the need to make medicines uh, affordable as possible for patients all over the world. So yeah, an excellent example, I think, of a great female leader and one that just, you know, talks about being professional and serving at people and serving at clients, which I think are really timeless uh, kind of lessons. So yeah, absolutely packed full of good stuff, that episode, which I hope you enjoyed. Uh, thanks as always to my team for putting today's podcast together for you, for listening. If you liked today's episode, please like and share it and take care. Hi again. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. Really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more shows, have a look on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, wherever you like to listen. And do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically. And please get in touch via our website, uh, Molecule to Market Pod or via LinkedIn or Twitter. We love to hear from you. So if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on Molecules Market, then please let us know. We'll see you very soon. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.